the deplorable condition of this world is an indictment on the failure of us as Christians in getting the gospel to every creature. 9-11, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Muslim Brotherhood, BLM, which I think means uh, buffet, li buffet lines matter, but that's another subject. Legalized abortion, same-sex marriage, drug traffic, political corruption, disrespectful athletes, and more are glaring examples of our failure in missions and getting the gospel out both here and abroad. There are several things about the passage that we read in Mark 11 that intrigue me. As is true with most Bible passages, it's loaded with spiritual truths and practical principles. The first thing I see is Jesus' physical strength. Jesus was not a weakling. These are not portable folding tables. They were probably large slabs of marble or stone that Jesus overturned that day. I believe that Jesus was a specimen of a man. He worked most of his youth and much of his adult life in Joseph's carpenter shop. And in those days, the carpenter did not call Home Depot or Lowe's or some local lumber yard and order two by fours or one by sixes already planed. They cut their own lumber from whole rough timbers. Take down the pictures that you have that are supposedly a likeness of Jesus that make him look like a moony-eyed sissy. He was not a moony-eyed sissy. And then I see Jesus' capacity for anger. This is not the meek and mild Jesus most people think of. This is no milk toast, lacy underwear. I don't know if Jesus wore underwear, but if he did, I don't think he had lace on it. There's no retiring, shy, unobtrusive Jesus. He is indignant because of what he saw and makes no effort to conceal his wrath. You know, there are some things that should provoke us to anger. Now, Paul said, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. But there are some things that should anger us. And there are some things that deserve our indignation, but don't get me started. By the way, Jesus did not lose his temper. This is all the scripture most hotheads know. It's like John 2 is a, all the scripture most alcoholics know. Well, you know, Jesus turned the water into wine. Yeah, but it wasn't Mogan David. Jesus was never any more in control of his passions and his emotions than he was when he entered the temple that day and cast out the money changers. He was not provoked. What he did that day was as much a part of his plan and purpose as creating the sun and the moon and the stars and man in his own image. And we also see Jesus' zeal for God's house. And we know that the temple was not the church, but it was God's meeting place with his people. How we need to have a zeal for the house of God, the local New Testament church, your local New Testament church. All you do for God should begin and end in your church. Your social life should revolve around your church. Your dating should revolve around your church. Your recreation should revolve around your church. Your financial planning should revolve around your church. 
Your family life should revolve around your church. And of course, your ministry should revolve around the church. But what was it that brought on that outward shocking display of indignation in Jesus that day? The answer is in verse 17. Jesus said, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. I'm sure you know the story, people from all over the known world. That's a strange expression. Did, did, did people who were not in the known world know that they were not in the known world? And if they knew that they were in the world, were they not part of anyway, it? Things like that don't bother, don't bother you. They bother me. Like, you know, interstate highways in Hawaii. So you're so slow, aren't they? Yeah, okay. Yeah, you, you just had dinner. People from all over the world came to Jerusalem to worship the true and the living God. Under the Old Testament economy, they had to bring an animal sacrifice. Many of them came from distant lands. They had to change their money into the temple coin. They had to buy animals to sacrifice to God. And these merchants had set up shop in the temple and were making merchandise of the people that came to worship the true and the living God. They were charging exorbitant prices, probably in collusion with the priest, high priest and his family, getting rich for the people who came to worship God. But there's still more to it than that. I want you to look again at verse 17. We tend to see the phrase, den of thieves, but we skip over the first part. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? My house shall be called a house of prayer. He says it was written. Look at where it was written. Look at Isaiah chapter 56. Verse 4 says, For this saith the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths and choose the things that please me and take hold of my covenant. Even unto them will I give in mine house and within mine walls a place and a name better than the sons of, of, and of daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the stranger and, uh, th that join themselves to the Lord and serve him and to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants and everyone that keepeth his Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant. Even them will I bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their, burning, their burnt offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar. And listen to this, for mine house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. Jesus says, for all nations. Jesus, Isaiah says, for all people. By the way, he wrote both of them. So if he wanted to say it one way in Mark and another way in Isaiah, that's his, that's, that's, that's his business. But here it says, for all people. And house of prayer for all people. Now, go back with me for just a minute. You've studied the temple. You probably have a diagram of the temple in the back of your Bible somewhere. You don't look at it right now. You look at it when you, do it when you get home. The temple was not just a building. It was a series of courtyards. As one approached the temple in the days of Jesus, you would first encounter what is called the courtyard of the Gentiles. 
This was as far as the believing Gentile could approach to worship the true and the living God. Just inside that was called the courthouse of the or courtyard of the women, where the Jewish women could come and worship. Just inside there was the courtyard of the Jews, where Jewish men 12 years of age and older could approach. This is probably where Joseph and Mary uh, found Jesus confounding the doctors of the law when they thought he was lost. Just beyond that was the holy place or the sanctuary where the designated priests carried out their daily duties. We're sure that this is where Zechariah was when uh, the angel appeared and announced to him the coming birth of John the Baptist. The candlestick and the table of showbread were in the holy place. And then the innermost part, the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant and the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, the tables of the covenant. The mercy seat where the priests sprinkled the blood of the lamb once a year for the sins of the people was in the, the uh, holy of holies. Where Jesus overturned the money changers was in that outer courtyard called the courtyard of the Gentiles. And here's what happened. Jesus entered the temple that day. He saw these wicked, vile, money-grabbing, selfish men using the area that was to be used to draw the stranger, the Gentile, to God, being used to exploit the nations, the Gentiles. Remember, he said, my house shall be called an house of prayer for all people. But not only was this where the Gentiles were to approach God, this is where the Jews, God's chosen people, were to come to pray for the salvation of the Gentiles, of the nations. But they were using what God had designated for the salvation of the Gentiles for their own gain, for their own benefit, for their own desires. What a scandal. Jesus said, but you have made it a den of thieves. Here was Israel's mistake. God had taught them over and over again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. God intended for Israel to be a one God nation. What they did not understand or what they refused to understand was that God never intended to be a one nation God. God always made provision from the Gentile. From Ruth to Rahab, Naaman to Nebuchadnezzar, Old Testament, New Testament, God's aim has always been all the world, the whole world, all nations. God had been good to Israel. He had given them the world's greatest kings. He had given them a land that flowed with milk and honey. He had given them direct access to the true and the living God. He had given them his very Holy Spirit breathed word. He had blessed them as he had blessed no other nation. But Israel made the same mistake that so-called Christian America is making today. They took what God intended to be used for the salvation of the nations and consumed it on their own lusts. They had literally moved the courtyard of the Gentiles to the back of the temple area. They had relegated the largest, the most prominent area 
to the most obscure part of the temple, and they had replaced it with money-grabbing, profit-taking, selfish, lustful men. And I'm afraid that that is exactly what is happening today. Let me ask you a question. Can anyone deny that God has been good to America? What, uh, and, and this is not an indictment, and, and I'm not trying to put you on a guilt trip, but what America wastes could feed most of the rest of the world. I have a dear doctor friend. He said that what is thrown in the trash of most hospitals in the United States would support the average hospital in the third world. In our churches, in our lives, in our families, in our budgets, what should be number one, getting the gospel to those who have never heard, missions, soul winning, is relegated to a place of secondary importance. We have been invaded by thieves. I'm going to name some of these thieves. There's some thieves here tonight. I'm going to call some names. I'm reminded of the preacher that preached on tithing one Sunday morning. And he put a brick on the pulpit. He said, there's a deacon in this church that is not tithing. I'm going to throw this brick at him. And he pulled back and seven deacons ducked. Well, I'm not going to call anybody's name, but I'm going to, I'm going to name some thieves. The thief of indifference. I just don't care. Dost thou not care that millions are dying? Dr. Curtis Hudson said that he saw a sign on a dry cleaners that reminded him of something. He said, the, the sign said, we, we die, D-Y-E. We live to die. We die to live. The more we die, the more we live. The more we live, the more we die. Some of you don't know how to spell, do you? I saw a sign on a furniture store the other day. It reminded me of some Christians. said, one year, no interest. Now let's let that soak in for just a second. The thief of materialism. The thief of leisure. The thief of security. The thief of personal image, the thief of personal comfort, the thief of self, the thief of convenience, the thief of career, the thief of selfishness, the thief of lust, the thief of pride, the thief of fear, the thief of faithlessness the fear of unbelief. And what I believe is the greatest thief of all is the, pre, the thief of prayerlessness. I was at a missions conference. One of our graduates was preaching and he mentioned that there are 283 countries in the world. And he said the average person can 
name 40 of those countries. I'm going to give you some homework. And I'm serious about this. I want you to go home tonight. I want you to get a pen and a piece of paper and write down the name of every country that you can name without Googling or consulting with an atlas. I went to my room that night, Brother Wilkerson, and I started writing the names of countries. I named 80. That's just a little over one-fourth. If we cannot name the nations, are we really praying for them? I was so winning in Israel with one of our graduates. Went to a park downtown Tel Aviv and witnessed to a young African man. He spoke English, so I was able to witness to him, led him to Christ. He prayed, asked Jesus to save him. And I asked him, what, where are you from? What country are you from? I did not know that country existed. Now, I'm, pre I'm preaching to myself tonight. How many of you ever heard of the country of Eritrea? Just a smattering. Who prays for the nations? Jesus said, my own ask, is this not God's house? Now, I know that the building is not God's house, but when we're here, this is God's house. How close are we to what God wants us to be if we are not praying for the nations? Who prays for the nations? We need to overturn, overturn some tables. We need to expose and expel some thieves from our churches, from our lives, from our hearts, from our families. And we can either do that ourselves, we can rid our, these, our lives of these thieves ourselves, or we can wait and allow God to do it for us but you remember, God may take drastic measures if he has to do it himself. We'd be very wise to make an honest and earnest inventory of our lives, an examination of our schedules and of our prayer lives, and see if our burden for the nations is anywhere close to what God wants it to be. Could Jesus have gone to the temple that day to pray for the nations? If Jesus called them thieves, they must have stolen something. These thieves have stolen. They've stolen our sense of the eternal. They've stolen our compassion for the lost. They've stolen our love for God. They've stolen our sense of urgency. They've stolen our sense, our spirit of sacrifice. There is a world that is dying and going to hell 
and they all need to hear the gospel, but they will never hear until we face up to our personal responsibility to do our part. Did you know that the average independent, I'm not talking about Lutherans or Presbyterians, I'm talking about the average independent fundamental Baptist gives $2 a week to missions. This church is the glaring exception to that. I was reading the report of the offerings for this last week. If you take the general offering and the missions offering, this church gives much more than 25, almost 30% to missions. This is the exceptional church, and you are an exceptional church. And I commend you for that. I'm not talking about the church. This church is doing well. This church has able leadership. And, and as a church, and I, I include, we're going in the right direction. I, I, I think we've, I, I think for the most part, we, we got it down. And I praise God for that. I'm not talking about the church. I'm talking about you personally. It's awfully easy in a church like this. Well, there aren't any churches like this. But it's awfully easy in a good, missions-minded, soul-winning church to hide behind what everyone else is doing. When you take your faith promise missions commitment card and you look at that, you just try to think of what God would want you to do and how much God would want you to trust him for. Just one nice thought. There's nothing wrong with your looking at your budget and deciding I can give this much and give that to missions. There's nothing wrong with that. But you will never know the true blessing that comes with doing it by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. If you look at your budget and you can give $25 a week, and you promise $30 a week, did you know that your faith promise offering is not $30 a week? Your faith promise offering is only $5 a week? Let me ask you a question. Is your God only worth $5 a week? Every year when our faith promise missions conference comes around and we're challenged to increase what uh, we did the year before. I've been in this for, I've been given a faith promise for 50 years. I was four years old when I started. Boy, there's a spirit of unbelief in this place. <laughs> and every year I've increased it. And I'm going to tell you something. After a while, that, that becomes a challenge. This last year I was praying about what God would want Emily and, and me to do in our faith promise offering. And I, 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 I couldn't decide on a percentage, you know, shall I increase it by 10% or 5% or, and the Lord laid on my heart to increase it by the amount that our church supports one missionary. Can you imagine what would be, what could be done 
if everybody in this church that gives to faith promise would decide, okay, this is how much my church gives to to missionaries every month. I'm going to increase my faith promise so that with my, just my faith promise alone, we could take on one extra missionary. Some of you looking at me like a calf looking at a new gate. Do you think that God does not want you to support one missionary? Do you think that would not please God? If you just looked at your faith promise card and this is how much I'm giving and I'm going to increase it so that my church can take on one extra missionary with just my faith promise offering. Can you imagine what could be done with that? The amount of money needed to get the gospel to this world is overwhelming to us. It is not overwhelming to God. God will honor your faith. He will go beyond what you believe him to do. God will not disappoint you. And you'll face your Savior one of these days, hearing the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant.